Jonah 1, 1 through 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps that God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Allison. Well, good morning again. We uh, have been going through the book of Jonah during this season of Epiphany. If you're unfamiliar, Epiphany is this uh, kind of chunk of the church calendar where we celebrate the fact that Jesus has come as the Savior of the world, that he's come to extend his grace and compassion for people that aren't just us. And so for uh, this, you know, next few weeks and for the past month or so, we've been thinking about this amazing theme from the Bible, the mission of God, and we've been, we've been looking at that theme from this famous small uh, book from the Hebrew Scriptures, Jonah. And to set up what we're going to talk about this morning, um, I, I, I have a friend of mine named Russ. I went to college with him. He's a dear friend. Uh, and what I love about Russ, so many things, one of the things I love about him is that he pushes me to think kind of outside the box of what I'm kind of naturally inclined to think about. So, for example, we get together every year, him and a couple of other buddies of mine from this kind of college friend group, and we, you know, we, we, we always have this preliminary conversation of, well, what are we going to do this year? Where do we want to go? Do we want to change things up, do something different? The conversation kind of goes like, oh, you know, we're on this text thread or 
kind of a conference call, and somebody will say, maybe we could rent a cabin in North Carolina. This is kind of what we typically do. We will go to North Carolina and hang out in the mountains, or, oh, maybe we'll get a lake house, get an Airbnb or something, and go on the water for a weekend or something. And Russ is the kind of guy that says, or we can go to Australia. We're like, oh, or we can uh, go mountain biking through Italy. And we're like, that's a bigger and more expensive trip than the one we were thinking about. But that, that's awesome. Like, he would be the kind of guy, if you were to bring him in here and say, okay, we're, we're kind of maxing out space here. How do we reconfigure chairs to, to get, get more people in here, get enough people in here? And he'd be like, how about you buy a city block? And, uh, you know, blow out the walls and, you know, build something. You're just like, oh, okay. So well, the reason I bring this up is because uh, I feel like God in the same way in this opening chapter of Jonah is, is kind of blowing off the walls, as it were, of, of forcing us to think outside of our parameters. That he's, he's pressing Jonah and he's pressing us to expand our vision of who God is and what he's up to in the world. It's like God looks at us in this opening chapter and says, hey, you have this instinct to shrink me, to reduce me and minimize who I am and what I'm doing in the world, and, and I want you to have a bigger, I want you to get synced up to how big I really am and how big of, of this thing that I'm doing in the world. So um, what we're going to do, by the way, in case you were here last week, I know that we looked at this chapter. This is not a misprint. There's so much here. I thought we'd just take it. Let's just take another lap around the block and just kind of look at this one more time before we move on to chapter two. But what I love about this opening chapter is it just gives you such a vivid picture of two things. One, the danger of having a shrunken God and uh, the freedom of having an expansive God. So those are the two big ideas I want to just briefly look at with you this morning. The danger of having a shrunken God and the freedom of having an expansive God. So let's look at the first one first, because that is what you do with the first things. Um, Jonah is, I think, just a great case study for somebody who, who really has shrunk God down into something smaller than God actually is. And, and you can see this pretty clearly in just kind of the way that they're kind of dialogue goes in this uh, story. God comes to Jonah in verse 2 and says, I want you to go and I want you to preach to Nineveh. This is a foreign nation. These are people of a different race, different, different ethnicity. They're, they're these, I want those people way over there to know my grace and to have my compassion extended to them. And Jonah is not feeling that at all. And so rather than arise, he goes down. Rather than going east, to Nineveh, he goes west to Tarshish, and here's why he's not feeling it. Here's why he's just not into this whole thing. You get a hint of this in verse 9. This is the first time Jonah speaks in this whole story, and uh, you, you might remember he gets in this boat, goes in the water, there's this giant storm, he's, he's, he's with all these sailors on board, and the sailors start freaking out, and they come to Jonah, and they're like, oh my goodness, who are you? What god have you ticked off to bring about this crazy storm? And here's how Jonah identifies himself in verse 9. He says, I am a Hebrew. He puts his race out there as the thing that is most significant to him. That's the thing he wants these people to know about him. I'm a Hebrew. Not even his name, not his occupation, not his Enneagram number. He leads with, the thing that he leads with is his, is his racial and national identity. Now, you might think, okay, that, that's not... That's not a huge deal, but that's a, that's a hint 
of something that's coming to be a lot clearer later on. And so let's just fast forward to the end, and I'll give you a little spoiler alert of what's actually going on, why Jonah is running. Here it is. Here's the spoiler alert. The reason why Jonah's running is because deep down he's a nationalist. He believes in his heart of hearts that God really only cares about him and his people, that God really only wants to bless them. So when God comes to him and says, hey, I want to bless them, those people, those people way over there who believe differently than you, who, who don't think the same way that you do, I want my compassion to go to them too. Jonah is not into it. He, he runs. He believes that God exists and should exist only for him, only for his people. Those people deserve whatever judgment or punishment they have coming. So don't, don't you see how, how Jonah has shrunken God down into something smaller? I don't want you to have compassion on them, on those people. I only want it for me and for my people. Now you think, okay, whatever, this is just some, you know, story of bigotry in the Bible. What's the big, you know, what's the big deal? How, what is the danger? What's the danger if you have a shrunken God? Here's the danger. There's, there's lots of things that you can see, uh, but let, let me just show you what happens to Jonah. Jonah has, a, has shrunk God down, and as a result, he has a shriveled up soul. That's the danger. His soul has basically become like a raisin. It's just withered down to something small. Here's the first, uh, first thing. First of all, he's running. He's, he's disobeying God. In fact, the author gives you some really fascinating wordplay in this passage to show you how off Jonah is. In fact, I'll, I'll just show you a couple. Uh, look at verse 4. It says, the Lord hurls a great wind on the sea. And then at verse 5, you have these mariners, these sailors. They're afraid. They start hurling cargo into the sea. Down in verse 15, they hurl Jonah into the sea. There's a lot of hurling in this opening chapter. But here's what's fascinating is uh, God hurls. The sailors hurl. Jonah sleeps. This, the, the, at a word level, the sailors are more synced up with God's activity than Jonah is. And in fact, look at uh, the captain of the ship comes to Jonah in verse 6, and he says, arise, which should, that should sound familiar because look at verse 2. That's what God says to Jonah. The very words of God are in the mouth of this Gentile pagan ship captain. And so here's the irony is that Jonah won't go speak for God to the Gentiles, but the Gentiles will speak for God to Jonah. He's radically out of sync with God's heart and activity in the world. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Jonah doesn't pray once in this whole story, but the sailors, these other sailors, these pagan, they don't believe the Bible, they kind of pluralistic, believe whatever they want. They're praying throughout the whole chapter. Jonah doesn't pray once. In fact, he has to be told by the captain, you should probably start praying. Isn't this like what you do? Isn't this what you believe in? Here's the third thing. The sailors are concerned for human life. They're throwing out cargo. They're the ones that are rowing to the shore. They're trying to save everybody. Jonah's passed out below deck. He's completely apathetic to their concerns, their fears, their needs. Here's what you see is that Jonah is radically out of sync with God's heart. The danger with having a shrunken God is that you develop a shrunken soul. Your whole world narrows down and becomes small, and it becomes just about you. So here's the question. How big is your God? And how big is your soul? 
How big is your vision for the, for the world that, that God has and that God has compassion for? I'll just speak for the Christians in the room for a second. I know not everybody in here identifies themselves as a Christian, but for those that you, of you that do, I'll just intermurally, we'll just speak for just a second. Um, it's really easy for Christians to spend the bulk of our time only around other Christians. And there's a reason for this, I know, is because we like each other. We, it's, it's more comfortable to be around people that think and believe the same things as us. Uh, there's people in here that we don't know that we want to get to know more and spend more time with. We want to be in Bible study. We want to do this. We want to, like, all, all of that's great. All that's wonderful and good. The problem becomes when your whole schedule becomes filled up with only people that think like you, believe like you, live like you. And so you have no capacity. You have no bandwidth. You have no space, no margins for anybody else that might believe differently, think differently. And here's where I do have to be careful because I know that we're all crazy busy. All of us are very busy. And sometimes we enter into seasons of life that are just extremely chaotic, extremely stressful, where all you can do is just survive. It's just, I can't, I don't have any capacity for anybody else other than me or my job or my family or whatever. And that's totally fine. That's okay. Sometimes you go through seasons where it's like, I don't have capacity for anything else. I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to stay alive at this point. The challenge is when seasons become this whole story, when the seasons of busyness become just the story of your life, and so you, you live your whole life without any margin, any capacity for anybody else. The mission statement of your life becomes just about getting your individual little needs met. Uh, Annie Dillard wrote the sentence that has haunted me for years. And here's what she says. She says, how we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. How we spend our days is, of course, how we spend our lives. And so if you live your life day after day after day after day after day after day after day, just only focused on you, only concerned about your needs, your interest. That becomes your life. And that life has been reduced to something that's smaller than what God intended. The danger of worshiping a shrunken, shriveled God is you have a shrunken, shriveled soul and a shrunken, shriveled life. That's the danger. But there's good news in this passage. So let's look at the second big idea. That's the danger of having kind of a shrunken God. What about the freedom of having an expansive God? The freedom of having an expansive God. Uh, God tells Jonah, I want you to go to those Gentiles, those pagans over there, and I want you to preach. Preach, preach against them so that, they, so that they might experience and receive my compassion and my grace. And uh, Jonah says, no, not interested, and he bolts. But here's what's so hilarious about this uh, story is because where does Jonah find himself? He finds himself smack dab in the middle of a boat surrounded by pagan Gentile sailors, the very people that he didn't want anything to do with. He's stuck with them in this boat now. And the thing that he wanted to avoid, which was them coming to know the God of the Bible, them coming to experience grace, ends up happening at the end of the chapter. Look at verse 14. 
these Gentile sailors, it says, therefore, they called out to the Lord. Any, anytime you see Lord in, uh, in all capitals, which is in verse um, 14 in the, in the uh, actual Hebrew, it's in, it's in all capitals, it's the translation of the word Yahweh, which is this very specific, personal, covenantal name of the God of the Bible. They go from praying to the gods, whatever God they believe in, in verse 5. They go from praying to their gods to the God, to the God of the Bible. And in fact, look at how this, this chapter concludes in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. I mean, that's bonkers. They, they hear these pluralistic, you know, they don't believe the Bible. These are, they're, 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 they're totally unorthodox. And by the end of the chapter, they're calling on the name of Yahweh. They're offering sacrifices to him. They're making vows to serve him. This looks like conversion. This looks like people who, who are coming to faith for the first time in the God of the Bible. Here's the point. You, you can't stop God He's that big. He's that powerful. You can't, absolutely nothing can thwart his purposes to show his compassion and to show his grace to the ends of the earth, even when you try. There's this park that I, I learned about in Ontario, in a city in Ontario called Guelph. I, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. G-U-E-L-P-H, Guelph. Uh, it's a park, and there's this, this river that runs through the park, and it's, you know, it's just a beautiful, nice park, but they, and they have all these statues, these big kind of sculpture, giant sculpture things. You can look this up online, and these are not ordinary statues, though, ordinary sculptures. Um, every year, there's tons of garbage that gets washed up in the river, in the, in the riverbed. There's... Um, Shopping carts and tires and baby strollers and urinals. I mean, can you imagine seeing a urinal in a in a in a river? Maybe maybe this park isn't as nice as, as I originally painted. But uh, you know, mountains of algae-covered Coke cans, shoes, all of this trash. And so what the what the people at the park said is, okay, we can take all this trash out of the park and we can haul it off to a landfill, or we can bring in artists. And we'll clean all this garbage up, and we'll sculpt these statues out of the trash that gets washed up in the riverbed. And so they have these giant statues of like a dinosaur. There's a statue of a mother holding their child. There's a giant statue of a, of a man riding a bike. And it's all from this just junk, this garbage that was washed up in the river. Now, here's what's fascinating. Here's this trash that people discarded. They intended to get rid of this stuff. And some artist came along, took it, cleaned it, and sculpted something beautiful out of it. Jonah chapter 1, you have this vivid picture of God as artist who takes our junk and he sculpts something beautiful out of it. I mean, look at what he does with Jonah. Here is Jonah, this nationalistic racist, self-righteous, rebellious, renegade prophet. And he takes Jonah's very sin and his rebellion, and he somehow inverts it and brings about life and grace and compassion for these people that didn't know him. He uses 
Jonah's worst attempts at trying to screw up the whole plan and accomplishes it anyway. That's how big and expansive and powerful our God is. He can take the worst things about us, our flaws, our weaknesses, our character defects, our our downright rebellion against him, and he can take it all and still use it. Still use it to accomplish his purpose and his mission of extending and showing his compassion and his love to people that don't know it yet. Here's where we have real freedom. Because the real freedom comes in this great reality of knowing that you can't mess this up beyond his ability to redeem it. You can't mess it up. He's too powerful. He's too big. That gives you the freedom to exhale. In fact, this goes even deeper. Centuries after this story, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus stands up at a synagogue, kind of a church space like this, and he delivers his first sermon, first public sermon. And he opens up the scroll from Isaiah and he reads it. And it's about the Messiah who has come to proclaim good news to the poor and proclaim liberty to the captives and and to liberate those who are uh, oppressed. And he reads this scroll and he says, this scroll, this passage is about me. This is, I am the Messiah this is pointing to. And he rolls it up and he sits it down and everybody's blown away. Here's what they say in, in verse 22 of that chapter. They says, it says, everyone spoke well of him. They marveled at his teaching just, good grief, that dude's insane, that sermon rocked, you know, I don't know, whatever. They marveled, they thought it was awesome. Then Jesus starts to flesh out the implications of what he meant by that, and he starts to give these examples to show, well, I have come not just for the people of Israel, but for the Gentiles too. I have come for people that look radically different from you, who believe radically differently from you, who, uh, who, who, Um, in some ways, are your national enemies. And then here's what happens next. In verse 28, it says, When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. That's how that sermon ended. Let's hope it goes better for me today, um, although I'm not claiming to be the Messiah of the world. But you see what happens is they have this shrunken view of God. No, God only exists to bless us. He only should care about us. Why does he want to bless them? And they hated that idea so much they tried to kill him. And in fact, they eventually did. As you know, as the story goes, they strung him up on a cross and they executed him on a cross. And this was their way of, I want to shrink you. I want to reduce God to nothing. I want this God to go away. When, you, when they encountered the true God who has a heart even for our enemies, they said, he's got to go. Shrunken God, shrunken soul. And what did God do? He took that hideous, heinous act of rebellion against him. That, that took that barbaric moment on the cross and he inverted it and used it to be the very thing that saves the world the very thing that makes everything right. He took, he took the worst that we could throw at him. We're going to reduce you to nothing. We want to kill you. And he took it and he used it in such a way that he saves us from ourselves now. When you know you have a God that is that loving, that sovereign, that powerful, that merciful, that he can take what is the worst about us, the worst about us, and still use it, 
all the pressure is off now. Because now you can enter into his mission knowing I'm going to mess this up. I'm going to make mistakes. And he's somehow mysteriously still going to use it. I can go serve my neighbors and sacrifice for my neighbors and pour myself out for this neighborhood. And uh, there's no more self-imposed guilt, no more self-imposed pressure, no more, no more shame. You're, you're free. You're completely free because he is at work. He uses us, even what's messed up about us. Isn't that liberating? Isn't that freeing to know that he is at work in us and through us and even despite us? So here's where I want to leave this. I want to leave you with a question. I want you to think about what risks can I take this week for my friends and for my neighbors right here in Midtown to serve in ways that might be outside of my comfort zone or to extend myself in the name of love for, that might be outside of my comfort zone, knowing I don't really know what I'm doing, knowing I might screw this up, knowing I might say the wrong thing, and knowing also that he takes all of our messy, weak, screwed-up attempts to love other people, and he redeems them, and he uses them. The pressure's off. We are freed now to love. That's the good news. So let's go do it. Let me pray. Father, thank you that uh, you are that expansive, that big, that powerful, that we cannot screw this mission up beyond your ability to redeem it and to heal it and to forgive it and to use it for your own glory and your own purposes. Would you help us to trust you? Would you help us to lean into this liberating freedom of knowing that you are bigger than we imagined, you're more merciful than we imagined, you're more compassionate to us and to even our enemies than we imagined. Help us to enter into that great freedom because of your grace and your love. We pray all this in Jesus' name.